When I got my Keurig Brewer, I loved it so much I decided to name it. The right name had to fit my many sides, from the bold dark roast side to the soft herbal tea side. I landed on Freddy. Yeah, Freddy. It works for me. Who doesn't love their Keurig Brewer? It can brew the perfect cup of coffee, tea, and hot cocoa with just the touch of a button. All without a fuss and so little mess or cleanup. With over 250 varieties to choose from, it's no wonder people actually name their Keurig Brewers. Visit Keurig.com for more info. about to inspire you with the stories of real people. Welcome to A Current Life with your host, Jimmy Gould. In the next hour, you will meet one of the most interesting and successful people in the world. Listen as Jimmy gets their real story of success, both the highs and the lows. We hope that you take with you some of the ideas we will share today and embrace your own journey. Now, here's Jimmy. Welcome to another edition of A Current Life. I'm your host, Jimmy Gould, and I'm very excited and honored to introduce to you my special guest this week, Laura Turner Seidel. Welcome to A Current Life, Laura. Well, thank you, Jimmy, for having me. It's uh, really exciting to, to be part of such a, an amazing program. Well, thank you. Uh, we've looked forward to having you on the show. Let me give our audience a, a proper introduction. Laura is a national environmental advocate an eco-living expert dedicated to creating a healthy and sustainable future for our children. Laura is chairperson of the Captain Planet Foundation, which promotes environmental education and gardens and schools, and Zero Waste Zone, an organization that promotes communities working together to change current disposal methods of consumed products. She co-founded Mothers and Others for Clean Air and the Upper Chattahoochee Riverkeeper. Uh, I can tell you that the work you're doing is... Uh, it is so essential to what we're all going through on this planet right now, and we thank you for your efforts. Oh, well, hey, hey you know, many hands make light work, and uh, there are a lot of people working on these, on these issues, thankfully. A lot so of really what, great people doing the, the smart thing, and, and, you know, they're, they're not doing dumb things. So, you know, we're, we're turning the Titanic around, I feel. Yeah, and we need to. I agree with you. The, uh, what inspired you to become such a strong advocate for the environment? Well, it's, it, it really began as a child where all learning begins. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a family that was uh, very much uh, mired in the Great Depression, and uh, my father always led by example, and he, he uh, really believed that you did not make money by wasting it. And so he was a real uh, a, a staunch advocate for not wasting a thing. We didn't waste food. You know, if you left a room and you left the light on, you know, you'd be called down for it. Uh, he drove a, a, a small Japanese car when a lot of his, uh, his uh, peers were driving the big luxury cars, uh, you know, we picked up trash along Northside Drive and took it to the country store, at, well, recycling, it was, you know, mostly bottles and cans and got a little bit of change uh, for that, and uh, we weeded our yard by hand, and it was just, you know, it was kind of a progression, and then when we used to go on vacation, instead of, um, you know, we go to these very wild places, but in the evenings, we would watch all the programming um, that he was screening for his television station, and a lot of it had to do with 
the environment because, of course, my dad was um, very much, uh, you know, a, uh, an environmentalist before and conservationist before it was really an issue in this country. And so, you know, we watched a lot of Jacques Cousteau uh, underwater adventure and uh, National Geographic Explorer uh, programs. So we really learned and just, you know, it was uh, an ongoing thing throughout our lives. Where, where were you born? Where, where was a lot of the influences? What, what city were you born in? Well, I was born in Macon, Georgia, and my dad was about 20 years old, and uh, he was running the outdoor advertising company for my grandfather in Macon. And, um, you know, shortly thereafter, uh, my grandfather committed suicide, and it was, you know, really hard on my dad, and he moved to Atlanta from Macon, so, um, and, and, and you know the story, he stayed in Atlanta, um, sure. you know, throughout his, his career and launched his company here in Atlanta and uh, CNN, and uh, it's still here today. Well, I mean, clearly he was ahead of the time, and not just in the media world, but, but in environment, and, and obviously had a strong effect on you. You know, was there a particular wow moment in your life? that kind of you knew what you wanted to do. As I look back on my life, I, I uh, in fact, a, a small fact is I think your father and my dad knew each other pretty well, grew up not too far from one another. And, uh, and I think there was a little period, I might be wrong about this, but I think it was in Cincinnati, Ohio. Right. And, That's where my dad was born and spent uh, many years of his you they know, lived, in his young age there, yeah. They, they lived across the street from one another. Uh, so as we talk about six degrees of separation or whatever it is, they literally lived across the street from each other. And, and when I heard that, my father has passed on, but uh, my sister tells me the story. But uh, um, I found that to be an interesting fact. But I'm curious, you know, when I was growing up, he was a lawyer. Everybody in my family were lawyers. And I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And then I got this wow moment that I love to build things and create things. And eventually, at the, at the right uh, young age of 30, I finally figured it out. I'm curious when your kind of wow moment occurred for you, because I do believe we all have that wow moment that helps define us. Well, you know, I when I graduated from college, uh, I took a job um, for a year at Greenpeace. And I worked <laughs> for David McTaggart, who was the founder of Greenpeace International, and at their headquarters in, in Lewes, England. And uh, that was um, at a time when, where Greenpeace was really fighting for rights of, of whales worldwide and working with the Whaling Commission and, you know, um, all the countries involved uh, to reduce uh, the amount of whales that they were taking and to, to you know, um, and, and those species that were suffering um, to, to stop hunting those whales. And then, of course, there was the whole thing with the baby harp seals that were, um, you know, being brutally killed right. and that they kind of put out there. But the year that I worked there was the year that the French government uh, secretly blew up their uh, flagship, the Rainbow Warrior, in New Zealand. And um, it was because Greenpeace was also involved in, um, you know, uh, uh, raising the nuclear testing issue um, as, as, a, as, a, as a problem, and these young people would get in their Zodiac inflatables and, um, you know, get to where the, the front ships were that were dumping 
radioactive nuclear waste in these barrels into the ocean. And that's what Greenpeace really did is, you know, these young people um, put their, their lives in harm's way to draw media attention so that the world could be alerted as to what was really happening. And uh, it's kind of, you know, um, it, 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 it's very much like the civil rights movement, um, you know, people who are willing to, to die for what they believe in. And uh, so that was really, you know, part of my progression as a person and knowing, um, you know, how strongly I felt about issues that uh, concerned um, everybody on the planet and especially uh, children and future generations whom we're supposed to be, you know, we're supposed to be stewards of, of the natural systems that support all of our lives and pass it on the way we inherited it. And, uh, you know, Greenpeace just, you know, represented what was really happening, you know, um, uh, that were, that, that was happening to species of animals that was unjust and unsustainable. And, uh, and, and so I, that was kind of a aha moment for me. Well, let me ask you what, what really started you out on your work with Captain Planet uh, Foundation and, and tell our listeners a little bit about that so that they really get to understand all the embody of the work that you're doing. Well, Captain Planet uh, was the first and only super eco eco superhero uh, in the world, and um, it was a cartoon that my dad dreamed up because he was really worried about the direction that uh, that the human race was going in on so many different levels, uh, based on scientific reports that came out in the eighties that were pretty you know, doomy and gloomy, and so he wanted to um, have a cartoon that edutained children uh, to teach them about global issues that, um, that were happening and that could affect their future. And so Captain Planet and the Planeteers was born, and it was seen in about 120 different countries in about 30 different languages. And um, it's millions of children around the world um, watched it in the 90s. And uh, what's interesting is, you know, these, these youth were so impacted. Now they're young career professionals and uh, college students, but they're meeting up on Facebook. And it's growing by thousands every month. There's 560,000, I just checked, 562,000, I think, uh, planeteers that are conversing in 43 different languages, you know, talking about um, what they're doing uh, around the globe. And then um, we're actually at the foundation. Uh, we give small grants uh, for formal and um, informal education, like, you know, hands-on uh, uh, educational learning uh, that have, have to do with environmental issues like planting trees, recycling, restoring wetlands, monitoring and testing water quality in rivers and streams in a community, um, uh, edible organic gardens. I mean, you know, there's the, the, uh, the activities are, are really limitless and, and some of them are very creative. But uh, so we're now getting grant requests from organized groups of planeteers around the world. We've gotten them from Bangladesh, Sierra Leone, Ghana, and in other places, you know, and it's just so exciting to see this amazing cadre or army, if you will, of young people that 
actually were educated and understand the issues and want to do something about it. And that, you know, so it worked, and it is working. And these are the um, the youth that are going to move into leadership positions. Um, you know, they're they're becoming the the sustainability officers in companies, and and you know, working for what is right and just for for all the people who live on this planet and for the species that we share it with. You know what I love about what you're doing is <clears throat> you really uh, are creating a global. Um, uh, quality to to your work, which is obviously you know, as we know economically, what happened over the last you know five years. I mean, <clears throat> if somebody had a problem in Spain or Greece, it affected everything that went on in America. And clearly, we're all interconnected. And you know, we've had these conversations on our show. We try to devote a show a month to these kinds of issues. I mean, I know I've had we have a mutual you know acquaintance in, in Alexandra Cousteau who I, I happen to sit on her board of Blue Legacy and we talk a lot about her trips overseas and other countries and how people in America would say, well, we're, I'm sure glad we don't have those problems in America when in fact we probably have a severe problem in America with our water uh, as anywhere. And I'm curious how you've you know, how you relate to that and how you feel we're adjusting and, uh, and kind of achieving some of your initiatives, you know, in both individually and also, you know, politically and socially well, here in America, I mean. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, when you take water as an issue, I mean, you, that's a big question that you just asked, and you could answer it many different ways. I mean, there's a lot of hopeful, great things going on in this country, but there, we are having um, a severe, uh, you know, a severe uh, issue with, with our fresh water. And, you know, I just read an article that Texas is running out of water, and uh, we know that uh, Las Vegas is the poster child of, of, of yeah. you know, what it looks like, you know, when, when you start panicking. Uh, because you're running out of fresh water. I mean, Lake Mead is is almost empty, and um, you know the governor there and the mayor there. They're they're you know I, 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 there was a great documentary called Last Call at the Oasis that kind of um, talked about the the water issues in this country. And Georgia actually has been experiencing a severe drought as as well, and the droughts are becoming more frequent and more serious. And uh, you know when we start. You know, it starts meaning something when it's happening in your backyard. And I think that there are a lot of people that are waking up to this. And you talk about what's going on in the United States. But the thing about it is, is that what's happening around the world also affects us at home. And uh, countries like China and India and the Middle East are running out of their water that's been stored in ancient aquifers for millennium. And now they're land grabbing in other countries, uh, mostly in Africa. Uh, they're going and, and doing backdoor deals and with failed states and near failed states and grabbing all this land. And they're raising food with the host country's water. Um, and they're fragile countries, and they can't even really afford to feed their own people, much less, you know, millions of hungry people in, in, or billions in other countries. So... You know, uh, it's estimated um, by the U.N. that food prices could double this year. And if that is the case, we are going to start seeing massive starvation. And we have got to start, you know, 
doing everything in our power to, sh- to, to share the uh, water technologies with, with uh, developing countries and make sure that we are using, you know, when you, when you really think about how much water there is available, out of all the water on this planet, there's half a percentage is, is potable and can be used for, for uh, growing crops. And about 70 to 90% of our water is used for irrigation and energy produ- production. And it's kind of hard to grow food if you don't have the water to grow it with. And when people start starving to death, that's when wars start. And they're already, you know, like what happened in Egypt was because of food prices. And you're going to see a lot more of that, the instability. And then all of a sudden, violence towards women escalates. And, and, you know, it's just uh, the domino effect. We really do have a connectivity between everything, and it all it's like dominoes, as you said. You know, I just came back from China uh, at the end of, uh, right before the weekend, and I went over to to form a a, a business uh, w- with some people in the in the um, apparel business. So it was just one of the things that I that I do, and I was struck by uh, the. Uh, and I don't want to pick on China. Which show goes into China, and I I was really taken by uh, a lot of the development that had gone on over there and the people were terrific and everything else, but uh, they got a serious pollution problem. And as I was leaving Shanghai and on a three-hour drive into uh, Hangzhou, I couldn't see a lot of the buildings. And I was wondering whether it was just low clouds or whether it was, you know, a real serious pollution problem. And it dawned on me, I was with some people that were our posts over there, and they said, no, we have a big problem. And, uh, you know, it reminded me back um, uh, when I lived in California, you know, and I could never see, you know, I couldn't see any of the skyline in California, you know, 15 years ago. So I'm curious, you know, and, and, and when I went to Africa and climbed Kilimanjaro, I didn't see snow as an example to 17,500 feet, you know, and I wondered, is this global warming? Is this pollution? Is it all the stuff that, you know, everybody's talking about? The right wing doesn't think that it's true. The left wing thinks it's very true. I also think there's a bit of overpopulation that gets thrown in there because there are a million people living at the foot of Kilimanjaro. So I figured the combination of factors were really affecting it. But I'm curious, you know, we talk a lot about it in this country, but, you know, as this happens more and more around the world, it's going to affect everything that we do every day, right? Uh, I couldn't agree with you more, and, you know, you mentioned population, and that just is a topic that, that people are very uncomfortable discussing, but in my lifetime, the population has, has doubled, and uh, more than doubled, actually, and we add 80 million people to the face of this planet every year, which is the size of, of Germany, and it is totally unsustainable, and if we continue on the current, uh, at the current birth rate, uh, by 2050, we could be at 11 billion people. Well, you know, given the, the, um, uh, where we stand with our ecosystem services, I don't think that we're going to make it there because we're going to run out of water and therefore run out of food, and we're not going to be able to produce the energy uh, either um, to to raise some of these developing countries up, 
Um, yeah. So, you know, and, and, I, and I think we really just have to have a, a, a reality check. You know, the science has been on the book since the 1800s. It says that if you put a lot of carbon in the atmosphere, it's going to act like a blanket and it's going to warm the planet. And everybody, the naysayers say, well, you know, hundreds of years ago and thousands of years ago, there were all these warming trends. And um, But why would we, knowing what the science is, why would we not do everything in our power to, to stop making the situation worse instead of just continuing to uh, pump out the carbon emissions willy-nilly and not even make an effort to, to try and, and, and mitigate that? And I think, you know, our children expected of us future generations won't be able to, um, to solve the problems. It's going to be too late by then. So, you know, we really uh, need to have a real reality check on, on these issues. And, you know, just like with cigarette smoking, you know, doctors used to say it's, 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 it's okay, it's healthy. The, 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 the celebrities and the sports you know, the sports jocks all got out there with cigarettes and said, you know, it's fine, you know, because it's what the industry, the picture the industry wanted to paint. And that's where we are, you know, uh, it, right now is that people are in this gray, fuzzy zone. They don't know what to believe. But it's uh, mostly industry and government that is driving this, um, you know, this uh, confusion about uh, climate and population. You know, I, I grew up in, in the Vietnam era, and I know that we didn't think a lot about the future. We, it was right in our face, and we were trying to figure out, you know, how we were going to survive because we had lost a lot of faith and hope, and, and that, that whether you were for or against the war, and, and in those days when you were, I was in college, we were against it. Uh, <clears throat> but we, we, when you lose your way towards the future, and I think this is happening again in our society, I think that people tend to not pay as much attention to the effects that everything that they do has on, on future generations. And I think today, politically and socioeconomically, I think that, you know, we're losing a lot of hope because people are out of work, you know, t times are difficult. A lot of the stuff, you know, in Washington does not get settled properly. There's constant bickering. And all of these things tend to, I think, add kind of a malaise to the way we look at one another and the way we look at our own lives. And, I, and, and the thing that bothers me, you know, I look, and, and speaking about China, you know, they've always had one kid and they were allowed to have one child. And now a lot of these children that grew up in factories, they don't want to do what their parents did. They're a very rich society now. There's a big upper, upper class. And, and now they're talking about increasing the family size to two. Uh, whereas, you know, you're, the topic that we started to address about overpopulation is probably one of the most sensitive topics you can talk about when you start to regulate how many children a family can have. And, and uh, I've always felt, without taking a position, you that it should so be... You are so right about that. But right now, at this very moment, there are 215 million women that want reproductive health care, and access to contraception and can't get can't it. Can't get it, right. And can't get it. And, uh, you know, and, and the biggest thing that we could do and most compassionate thing is to put some of our riches to work 
for those women and make sure that they get what they need. Absolutely. And and so yes, I I, I understand why population is a is, is a very tricky subject, but we're so used to. Uh, living for living for the fourth quarter earnings or the next mm-hmm. election. Now the Native Americans, they had there was that proverb that said, "We do not uh, inherit the the um, the earth from our ancestors; we borrow it from our children." And they also used to say, uh, you know, they used to consider what their decisions today would have what that impact would be on the seventh generation. So it wasn't always that that we became so short-term and short-sighted and just couldn't get uh, do the right thing. And that's where I think we are right now. And you know what? The right thing is making sure that we pass down a, a healthy uh, life support system to our kids. And then also, if you're doing that, you're going to be saving money because you're reducing the amount of uh, of uh, commodity, commodities when it comes to energy and water and, and, and waste and all of that, you, you look at things differently, you can save money. And, um, and, I, and I think that that is very compelling for, you know, uh, the business community and corporations, and, and it's just so heartening to see that there are a lot of corporations, Fortune 500 companies, that are really working hard uh, to, to, to do the right thing, to improve the bottom line. And I think that there are a lot of us out there who vote with our checkbooks that are driving uh, corporations to, to doing this. You know, I think with that you know, in mind, I think that uh, an important topic that I'd like to spend some time, we'll be coming into a break in a minute, but I do want to talk a little bit about um, about the creation of businesses and how uh, and, and what effect the, the whole uh, green movement, so to speak, or, and environmental concerns really has on it. Why it's so important to build these green businesses? Because not only because of sustainability, but because you know there is a responsibility you know uh, on this planet. I mean, it all starts with that. If we don't have the planet safe. And we can't live in a healthy environment. And it doesn't matter how much money you make. And and I've always felt, and I'm a businessman, you know, uh, probably second to my spirituality. And that is that I I wonder why it's so difficult, other than the normal answer of profitability, because I think ultimately what you said is you'll get more profitable if you do this right. Why it's so difficult for people to just understand and accept it? Because all you got to do is get up every day and realize climate isn't like it used to be. I mean, we don't have the same winters. We don't have the same summers. Things are different. And I don't know why people are arguing about this point. I really don't get it. And I'm curious what you've learned in your work about, you know, how you counter people who just refuse to admit it, that they're in denial. Well, first of all, a lot of those people do not grow up in nature, and they live in in, in a climate controlled world. So, unlike the you know the less fortunate in our society that can't afford air conditioning, and uh, you know have to put up with these brutally hot, off the chart temperature wise uh, summers. Um, you know, it's easy to deny that anything's happening. 
But, uh, you know, and that's why it's so important to make sure that children get out in nature. First of all, they learn experientially, but second of all, they learn to understand it and, and respect nature, and, um, and, and it becomes something that, you know, that they want to be a steward of and, and to take care of. And, uh, you know, getting kids out to, to grow in a garden is really important. They get their hands dirty. They get over the germa. Uh, the, the phobia of germs and dirt, and they understand nature's uh, natural systems, that how important they are, and they learn to not be afraid of bugs, and they learn how to eat fresh and healthy fruits and vegetables. So really, every school from the little, little bitties on up need to be planting in gardens, and, uh, uh, you know, it's just a, a great experience for kids. But also there's that uh, book that Richard Louv wrote called Last Child in the Woods that talks about nature deficit disorder. And kids that are not getting out in nature are not as well adjusted. They, make, they have lower self-esteem, higher rates of depression and suicide, and their grades aren't as good as kids that get out and, in nature. Well, you, I, I, I will tell you that... Um, uh, I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, I want to come back and talk about um, a camp that we built uh, to get uh, kids who were in the urban uh, uh, community who had never been out in the country, how we created a program to get them out there. I'm, uh, we're going to take a short break. Uh, this is Jimmy Gould with my special guest, Laura Turner-Seidel. A Current Life is sponsored by Smart Water and AdSpace Mall Network. Please stay tuned. When I got my Keurig Brewer, I loved it so much I decided to name it. The right name had to fit my many sides, from the bold dark roast side to the soft herbal tea side. I landed on Freddy. Yeah, Freddy. It works for me. Who doesn't love their Keurig Brewer? It can brew the perfect cup of coffee, tea, and hot cocoa with just the touch of a button. All without a fuss and so little mess or cleanup. With over 250 varieties to choose from, it's no wonder people actually name their Keurig Brewers. Visit Keurig.com for more info. The stove, the refrigerator, all the pots and pans. The sink? Sure, take the kitchen sink too. Yeah, pretty much everything in the kitchen I could live without if I had to. Except, of course, my Keurig Brewer. Who doesn't love their Keurig Brewer? It can brew the perfect cup of coffee, tea, and hot cocoa with just the touch of a button. All without a fuss and so little mess or cleanup. With over 250 varieties to choose from, it's no wonder your Keurig Brewer is the favorite thing in your kitchen. Visit Keurig.com for more info. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to A Current Life with Jimmy Gould. If you have a question or comment for Jimmy or his guest today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd like to send an email, the address is acurrentlife at yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to A Current Life. I'm your host, Jimmy Gould. And uh, I want to thank uh, Laura Turner-Seidel for being our special guest on the show. 
Uh, Laura, uh, before the break, we were talking a lot about the business community and what they can do to really continue uh, working uh, with the environment and, and building their businesses and then maintaining their businesses. And quite frankly, you and I fully agree that their businesses will not only become more profitable, but will help sustain our, our planet and, and our environment. Uh, can you talk about what corporations, how that's coming along with our Fortune 500 or Fortune 2000 companies and what they're doing about it today? Well, about 70% of Fortune 500 companies either have chief sustainability, chief sustain, I can't even say it, chief sustainability <laughs> officers or sustainability plans. And uh, the shareholders are, are uh, requiring it. The consumers are wanting it. Young people are holding corporations accountable. But it's also really important for mid-sized and small companies to do what they can, too, uh, to get that competitive edge. And there are so many uh, things that they can do. Some, a lot of times, you know, um, uh, business, small business owners really don't feel like they have time to consider, uh, you know, uh, 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 be- becoming more sustainable. But it really does improve the bottom line when you start looking at who in your office has an ethic, you know, a lot of young people would take the position to become the, the, the green dream team uh, that can look at ways to, uh, you know, reduce the amount of energy, water, uh, how to recycle so you're not paying as much uh, for waste hauling and, and the like. Um, you know, Toto, for instance, a, a company here, uh, their North American headquarters are here in our backyard, actually took their their employees trash cans away and gave them recycling bins. So if they contaminated the recycling bin, uh, then the, the, the trash would be just left in their office, I guess, indefinitely. But they had to take everything to the kitchen, and, and a lot of the, the food residuals were, were composted, and everything else was recycled. So, you know, companies are doing really great, innovative things, and they're um, you know, sharing that their best practices, uh, they're putting it out online, and I just, I, I think it's so important. I, I, I'm sure you know about what Walmart's done with their 60,000 sure. suppliers and how they, um, you know, have, have uh, uh, kind of sent out a, a questionnaire as to how their materials are sourced and have, where they're getting their water and their, how much energy that they're using and are they paying fair wages and are they using child labor and, you know, all of these um, issues that sometimes as consumers we don't even think about when we buy a product. But I tell you, companies like Walmart can really affect change, and they're doing it uh, hand over fist. And you know, it's just refreshing, and it's important, and, uh, you know, the impact is enormous. Well, you know, we uh, started, uh, um, <clears throat> back to your uh, question we had earlier, uh, we started um, a, a number of different kind of, um, you know, uh, charitable organizations uh, when we do whatever businesses we do. We do a lot of stuff in the in, with child care and with children and, and with legislation prevent child abuse in America. And we also started a th- uh, kind of a, a program where we were able to uh, have kids find mentors and then take them out to the country and have them spend a, a weekend out in the country. And we work with the churches and with the schools inside the urban communities 
these kids had never seen the country. I mean, they'd never literally been out in the country, trees growing and gardens and, and rivers and fishing and stuff like that. And it was an amazing weekend where they came away realizing so much that they didn't even know existed. And we gave them a, it was called Camp Bright Light, and we gave them a little key that they could push. And at night, if they got lonely or they got scared or whatever, when they were back home, because they were usually living in very violent communities in the inner city, um, they could push this light and it gave them an 800 number and they could call that 800 number. Uh, it, but the most remarkable thing, we were able to encourage sports figures and celebrities and people to come and be their mentors, like their big brothers and big sisters type program. And what we learned were there were kids who wouldn't talk. They just would not talk to anybody until they got out there and they were able to see animals running and deer and, and, and fishing and things like that. And it opened them up to a whole new world, and all of a sudden their voice came to them, and they started to trust, and you could start to see this, this whole change. And I think... You know, as we entered the IT generation and the whole thing with the Internet, you know, companies, obviously now the no company gets formed without having an IT person. So I really think it's the same thing with what you're saying with having a, a person who deals with, you know, those aspects of, of, of a green company being hired so that when you're building and designing and creating, you think about those things from the get-go rather than waiting till afterwards, which is always harder to do. And and that's why I love that's why I wanted you on the program. I, I want I love sharing the stories of the journeys of people who are really changing our lives every day. And I feel it's my responsibility to and through this show, which is why I created the show, to really tell those stories so that more and more people can understand what you do and that we do make a difference as individuals. Well, yeah, thank you very much. I, I love having this opportunity. Uh, what, going back to what you said about getting, you know, kids out in nature, there's some really scary statistics that have come out of the EPA saying that Americans spend 90% of their time indoors, and kids are actually spending 8 to 10 hours, not a week, a day, in front oh. of some kind of screen. So what, you know, it's a total disconnect, and they're being sold all these products that they don't need. It's about consumption and, you know, eating the wrong things and drinking the wrong things that are making them fat and, uh, and, and, and unhealthy. Their kids now have type 2 diabetes, yep. like 1 in 200 kids, which it was a, an adult disease. And they've, you know, until the past 10 years, it had never really been witnessed in kids before. And so kids are getting, they're sitting on their butt, and they're, they're on the computer, or they're playing video games, and they're certainly not getting outside and getting the exercise that they need. Plus, they're not learning experientially. And, um, and that's such an important part of, you know, how I grew up with my siblings and all of my friends, we were outside every day as long as we could be, um, you know, and the, the worst thing that you could hear was your parents calling you in because it yeah. was time for dinner. It was getting dark. Well, so, wasn't, um, that a, wasn't that a horrible feeling when you would hear them screaming for you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hated definitely. it. <laughs> most definitely. But uh, so... I just think that creating the, the next generation of environmental stewards is something we should focus on. And I tell you what, kids, just like they got us to quit smoking or to wear our seatbelt, they can teach us 
about how to take care of uh, of the natural systems and to do the right thing. They certainly know where the plastic bottles and the and the aluminum cans go, what bin to put them in, and they they can really teach. Uh, parents in a very quick way um, how to be responsible when it comes to some of these sustainability issues. So, uh, you know, it's, they, it's certainly a lot easier to, to teach kids than it is to retrain adults. Oh, absolutely. Let, let me ask you, do you feel the government's done anything or enough to cut back on the pollution or made any recent changes to regulations that affect the waste and pollution that companies produce? Well, I really feel like the um, Environmental Protection Agency has been really key. Um, I think the the best thing that Obama, one of the best things he did was to appoint Lisa Jackson, who is a, a, a chemist by training and such a, uh, a professional woman, and she has done some heavy lifting. I think she's kind of the modern-day Joan of Arc, um, and I really... I'm so sad that she's going to be uh, leaving the administration. But, you know, uh, recently in 2011, um, EPA finally uh, finalized the first-ever national standards to reduce mercury and other toxic air pollution um, from, from utility companies. Uh, it was called the Clean Air Mercury Rule, and it's, you know, these new standards will avert up to 11,000 premature deaths, 4,700 heart attacks, and 130,000 asthma attacks annually. So, um, you know, that is huge. And we started the Riverkeeper program here in Atlanta. We were number 10 out of 200 River Bay and Soundkeepers globally. And uh, the fishing advisory in the state of Georgia is an inch and a half thick. And, uh, you know, the, the fish are so polluted with mercury, so, and whatever, you know, is getting into the fish ultimately ends up in us, and that's why they tell, you know, tell you if you're pregnant or you're nursing your baby not to eat certain kinds of fish at all, and if you eat it, you know, certain kinds of fish that you should have it, you know, every very so often, and canned tuna uh, is probably one of the worst. If you have a tuna fish, albacore tuna fish sandwich today, in 400 days they can test your blood for mercury and it will be there from that one sandwich. And it's such a powerful neurotoxin uh, that, that it's crazy. But, you know, the EPA uh, was started under Nixon, you know, a, a Republican president. Sure. And maybe he, uh, you know, it didn't turn out so great with Nixon, but he did uh, establish the EPA and... Uh, and, and EPA came up with the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act and, and that are such important laws on the book, uh, and we don't need to roll those back. And some people in Congress, we had the most anti-environmental con- Congress in the history of the U.S. last year. Um, there were just, you know, there was like a 120 uh, bad pieces of environmental legislation that would roll back uh, these great laws and, and you know, create other havoc. Um, and it's just, it's, you know, why? Why do that? And it, it, it just absolutely makes no sense. And there are senators and congressmen in this country that in their career, over their lifetime, they have not been able to vote for one piece of environmental legislation, not clean air, clean water, 
uh, renewable energy, energy conservation, um, uh, uh, toxic-free food, anything, anything. How, how could that even possibly be? You know, you, you, and, and if you, know, you go to the League of Conservation Voters website, you can see the, the scores for the last Congress of every um, elected official, and then you can see their lifetime scores. And we should not be electing uh, these kind of uh, uh, people that should be leaders on this, and I understand if their constituents don't get it, but, you know, it's totally irresponsible. And and people need to know, and if they know about it, and, and, and they learn about it, and that's why ed- educating the public is one of the most important things that we can do, and that's what Dad did with CNN all those years. As he, in dark places, he turned the light on, and the, and the cockroaches sure. uh, 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 ran away for cover. And that, the media has become less responsible about reporting on, on environmental issues, and, um, you know, so it's hard for people to know what's really going on. Well, I do think, I, you know, in, in speaking about your father, I do think the creation of CNN and, and the fact that it went into places that, I mean, you know, I mean, <clears throat> when I go into foreign countries, I mean, it, I just immediately put it on, you know, and I can think back decades when, you know, that wasn't the case. And, you know, and, and, and now it's just a fixture. And clearly we go, you know, the, 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 the CNN goes into areas that a lot of people wouldn't touch. But, you know, I, I'm amazed that corporations who, who have historically supported their pro- put their products on commercials on networks that allow and I'm not talking about CNN but I'm talking about on networks where where they don't understand that you know corporations are monitored by groups like ISS and other groups that that rate how directors are treating you know how they treat their shareholders and quite frankly with the politicians we don't have the checklist you know I mean you know we have to go look it up but you know, I don't think that people should be allowed to, you know, I mean, I, I would change all of the election laws. I would not allow a president to rerun again. I'd have him a six-year term, and I'd say, okay, let's have a recall after three years. I'd start saving a lot of money, not allow private donations to go in, and certainly not interest groups. And I would have a whole different change, because I think the problem is that we have people that are barbaric that are representing us in Washington. I mean, we wouldn't be sitting on a fiscal cliff with three-month renewals that affect everybody's lives every day, because you know when your pocketbook is affected, you don't think about the environment. And if you're not, you know, so now the issues that are important to you and your safety of your children and the future of your children become less important because you're just trying to survive. You're just trying to eat. You're just trying to get to the doctor and just try to find somebody that would treat your medical problem. And I think we're kind of inside out. And, And what I like about your work, what I love about your work and the dedication you're showing is that, you know, we have to never lose sight of those things because if we lose sight of our future, then we really will never pay attention to it and we'll lose our way. And that is turning on the light and getting rid of the cockroaches and getting rid of the politicians in Washington who don't get it and are never going to get it, by the way, because they're probably being fed by the lobbyists who really don't want to get it and it's not in their benefit to get it. So I imagine you run up against this all the time. I imagine it's frustrating at times. I imagine that even with the clout that you have and, and, and the things that your family has done and the things that you've done, I imagine that it just want to pull your hair out sometimes when you look at this. Uh, well, you can say that again. And, it, <laughs> you know, one of the things that really haunts me is, is the number of, of chemicals 
that are legal to use in this country, like in personal care products and in cosmetics. And I'll just give you an example. I bet you didn't know that 86% of red lipstick has lead in it. And because our laws about cosmetics are so weak in this country, it's not even required to put on the label that there's lead in it. So women eat lipstick off their lips. And lead, as you know, is a, is a very toxic chemical. And wonder if you're pregnant. You know, there's no filtration between the mother and the fetus. So that means your baby is being exposed to minute amount of lead. But consider all the other chemicals uh, that, that, that the mother is being exposed to in the food that she eats, the pesticides there, the chemicals in the water, the toxins in the air, uh, the formaldehyde and, and, and parabens, and, which are hormone disrupt, disrupting and carcinogens that the mother's being exposed to, and it just is going straight to the baby. The American Red Cross and Environmental Working Group actually did a cord blood study of, of uh, several uh, fetuses and found 300 industrial chemicals uh, in, in the cord blood. And these were, you know, toxic chemicals that if they crossed the umbilical cord during certain key stages of development, that baby could be, you know, um, um, made sick or unhealthy, uh, like mercury, for instance. It goes across the, uh, moves across the placenta, and it can permanently shave off IQ points and other chemicals that can contribute to asthma, obesity, um, learning disabilities, learning uh, delays, all of these things. And when you look at the number of chronically sick kids in this country, and every year there are higher rates for the past 30 years, and as a matter of fact, higher rates of cancer in children. One in six kids have, have ADHD and are on some kind of medication. One in three kids are struggling with obesity. One in ten kids are asthmatic. And uh, when, you, when you add it all up, 50 to 75 million kids in this country, and only 10% are genetically related. And parents just think it's, it's bad genes, but it's not bad genes. No, it's it's the toxic cocktail that these children are being exposed to from the moment of conception. And I tell you, we cannot even pass the, the uh, Toxic Chemical Reform Act, the Safe Chemicals Act, or the um, Safe Cosmetics Act in Washington, D.C., to protect women and their children from, uh, from toxic chemicals put into everyday uh, products. Tell me about the Safe Cosmetics Act legislation that you've been involved with in Washington. Well, basically, it's, um, it's just all it's going to do is require complete labeling on cosmetics. So as a consumer, you can make an educated choice about the kind of products that you want to, to buy. And so it's a relatively, you know, easy thing to do, you would think. But we just can't get it done. The, the only, uh, that law has not been updated or changed. It was put on the books in the 1940s. And 1,100 of the ingredients in makeup in this country have actually been banned in Europe. We've only banned about eight of those same chemicals in this country. So that tells you, you, you want to be buying your makeup in Europe pretty much. Right. Um, but, 
you know, there's a great website, uh, Environmental Working Group has put up, and it's called the Skin Deep Database, so that as a woman, you can go and, and you know, enter in the name of the product that you're using, whether it's, um, uh, you know, cosmetics or personal care products, um, toothpaste, antiperspirant, you know, lotions, lipstick, whatever, and it will uh, give you, um, you know, how safe that product is on a, on a rating system. And, uh, you know, that's a really important service because, um, you know, they've got scientists over there. They pull the products off the shelf. They figure out what the ingredients are and test them for toxicity. And then they, you know, educate the consumer. But it really should be the government, you know, because there are a lot of people out there that don't even have computers to access the information. And, um, and the poorer you are, the more, you know, the more... Uh, apt you are to get higher doses of chemicals in your food because you're eating a lot of cheap processed foods and you can't afford water filtration and or bottled water for that matter and um, you know and, and you're living in toxic communities that have bad air quality or you know uh, uh, toxic chemicals or you know uh, incinerators what what have you and uh, so they get the big double whammy. Um, but, uh, you know, I can't say how important it is for, for people to become educated and talk to the legislators about how important it is to pass the Safe Chemicals Act and the Safe Cosmetics Act because it really is about um, our health and wellness and our family's health and wellness. Uh, if you've got a sick kid, then, you know, you are, you're strapped. You can't give back to the community in the way that you would be able to if, everything were functioning and as it should. Let me ask you, because uh, we have about five minutes uh, left in the show, and it's really been, well, uh, inspiring and so critical, and, and I hope sometime in the future you'll agree to come back. I know we've worked hard to get you on this, and we need to kind of make you a regular, because I think that what you're teaching us right now, and I'd like to have you leave us with a few uh, kind of eco-health tips that we can take away from today's interview, but I really want to thank you on behalf of all the listeners in the 187 countries that we got for your deep commitment and your dedication. I really appreciate it. Oh, well, uh, by all means, and thank you so much uh, once again, but um, I I would say that the the things to really um, concentrate are on our, let's start that again. The things that you should concentrate on are reducing um, unnecessary exposure from from chemicals that could uh, affect your health in in a, in a bad way. And so, the chemicals inside your home, you want to make, or your office, or your church, or your kids' school, um, like using uh, paints that have no or low VOCs, volatile organic compounds. Uh, you want to make sure that you're buying products that don't have formaldehyde in them, whether it's baby shampoos or kitchen cabinetry or, or um, you know, adhesives that you would use, uh, you know, in adult spaces. Um, you want to go to ewg.org and look up the pesticides and food database. They have the Dirty Dozen uh, food, you know, the foods, uh, the 12 foods that have the most uh, uses of different kinds of uh, pesticides, and then they also have the Clean 15, uh, so the ones that you really don't have to spend the extra t- money uh, to to purchase. 
that have very low levels of chemicals. And I, on the dirty dozen, most of those fruits and vegetables are your kids' favorite foods. Apples, peaches, uh, potatoes, strawberries, grapes, uh, different kinds of lettuces, um, and the like. So it's really important that you, if you can afford to, uh, to buy them um, uh, organic. It's kind of a trade-off. And, you know, eat less meat. And, and we're in the bison business, but, you know, it's, we way over eat dairy and meat, which is, uh, contributes to um, uh, heart disease and diabetes and, uh, you know, being overweight. And so we really should go back to eating meat as a condiment as opposed to, you know, three, three meals a day in, in huge quantities. Uh, so, you know, that's another, another great thing. Try to avoid using one-use throw-away plastics because the primary ingredient in those plastics is oil, and people have laid their lives on the line to fight for it, and we shouldn't be wasting it. Uh, and I'll tell you, the plastic straw thing is my number one pet peeve. In this country, every day, there are 500 million plastic straws that go to the landfill. So from our lips to the landfill, and they sit there for thousands of years with all that oil tied up in them, it's absolutely absolutely ridiculous. And a lot of that plastic does not get recycled. It ends up in our rivers and streams and ultimately in these five plastic gyres out in the ocean. And the fish are eating it and consuming it and um, getting uh, all these toxins, these toxins from the plastic in them. So it comes up in the food chain. But it's also, no matter where you go, it's all over the beaches. We were up in the Arctic Circle and in these very pristine areas, and there's plastic all over the beaches. Well, you know, you've given us a lot to think about. I hope you'll agree to come back on the show. Uh, we're kind of out of time, but I want to I want to thank Laura, Laura Turner Seidel for her time and sharing her journey with us, and for our listeners tuning into a current life. We hope you enjoyed the show, and you'll tune in next week for another exciting interview at three o'clock uh, Eastern time. Uh, and until that time, I wish each of you a journey filled with hope, inspiration, and much success. And Laura, to you. Uh, I hope you'll come back, and I want to thank you on behalf of everyone for your incredible dedication and your work with all your efforts to make our planet a safer and healthier environment for all of our children and the future generations. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Jimmy. It's just been great. Have a great day. Thank you, you too. Take care, and thank everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks again for joining us for A Current Life on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please tune in to another great program with your host, Jimmy Gould, next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time. We'll see you next week. The stove, the refrigerator, all the pots and pans, the sink. Sure, take the kitchen sink, too. Yeah, pretty much everything in the kitchen I could live without if I had to. Except, of course, my Keurig Brewer. Who doesn't love their Keurig Brewer? It can brew the perfect cup of coffee, tea, and hot cocoa with just the touch of a button. All without a fuss and so little mess or cleanup. With over 250 varieties to choose from, it's no wonder your Keurig Brewer is the favorite thing in your kitchen. Visit Keurig.com for more info.